We are delighted this morning uh, to welcome back one of our own, a member of this congregation since 1984. Uh, Henry Walker graduated from Tulane Law School in 1968 and practiced in Shreveport until he retired after 40 years doing criminal defense and civil rights law. He's married to Laurie Lyons, who retired with him after more than two decades as his law partner. And they've both been president of the Shreveport chapter of the ACLU of Louisiana and the Volunteers for Youth Justice. Um, he's a past president of the Louisiana State Criminal Defense Bar, and he still works with the domestic violence section of the Louisiana Bar Foundation. Um, he and Laurie have also worked with Morris Dees and the Southern Poverty Law Center litigating human rights issues. He's the father of Gray, Clay, and Alston, and the proud grandfather of Zoe and Alexander. Will you please welcome Henry Walker? morning. I want to talk today a little bit about indifference and how we have been infected by it from time to time. Dr. King spoke about indifference not quite 50 years ago and he said and I feel like he was talking directly to me and I suspect to some of you all. He said the well-off and the secure have too often become indifferent and oblivious to the poverty and deprivation in our midst. When I spoke on this occasion last year from this pulpit in honor of Dr. King, I spoke about the indifference we have here in Caddo Parish when we know as a fact that Caddo Parish locks up more people per capita than anywhere on the planet. And you sort of think that's disgraceful, but it's hard to put your finger on it. How, how did this happen? Is, is this just accidental, overzealous police? What? And well, you get a bit of insight when you, see, when you realize that the majority <clears throat> of these folks are African-American, the vast majority. And they'd been arrested for things that the white community in Shreveport will never have visited upon them. For example, young black men are constantly being arrested for crossing the street in the middle of the block. You're supposed to go to the corner. That's the law. I've never heard of this. Young black men are constantly being arrested for walking in the middle of the street, even when there are no cars, because there's a sidewalk there, and that's illegal. And that doesn't happen in white neighborhoods. Well, the message, it seems to me, was clear at that time. The criminal justice system in which I have toiled for a lot of decades is racially infected. That's not news to any criminal defense lawyer, but that is something that we should be reflecting on a lot. Well, on the other hand, today I've got a, a wholly new and really more insidious message because I read this book. Michelle Alexander, I know who she is, she's a big time lawyer with the ACLU in Northern California, teaches at Stanford, clerked for the US Supreme Court, she ain't stupid. The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. 
Of course, we know what that color blindness is because Fox News talks about it all the time. As soon as Obama got elected, we had no more racial issues. That's good to know. Well, Ms. Alexander gives us something that we didn't have before, but shocked me. And some of you may have already read this book. If you, if you have, you would have been shocked as well, because what she's saying is, well, let me see. How, put it this way. If you were talking to some of your colleagues or coworkers who you felt like were probably middle of the road, maybe leaning a little to the right, didn't think about it much, what would be the response if you said that blacks in Shreveport, blacks everywhere in this country, are victims of a racial conspiracy by our government to stigmatize them as criminals and so put them permanently in a caste state below us where they'll never get out of. Well, if I said that to the, I might think of somebody that I'm friends with as conservative, I'm not sure that's easy, but if I did, they would laugh at me. As well they might, that doesn't make any sense. That no rational person would think it's a government conspiracy for God's sake. That's exactly her thesis. Ms. Alexander says that what we've got in this country now is a new caste system. Caste system, think of, of India, untouchables. And that caste system is a stigmatized racial group locked into an inferior position by law. And Ms. Alexander says, look, we, we've always had caste systems. What do you think slavery was? And slavery went on for a couple of hundred years and, and there was nothing to be done about it because it was the law. Well, the Civil, the, the civil War started that and stopped that. And the Civil War ended slavery and so now what were the bigots going to do? They've got to have somebody that they, that they don't have to be on the bottom of the totem pole. Well, what they figured out they could do and they did from the latter part of the 19th century well into the first half of, this, of the 20th century was that they invented laws. Congress passed laws, states passed laws, which legitimized discrimination across the board. And voila, we have another caste system called the Jim Crow era. That's what Jim Crow is about. Deliberately segregating a whole section of our community into an inferior status that they can't get out of and using the law to do it. Well, then the Supreme Court comes along in the middle of the 20th century and says, wait a minute, that's all illegal. It's unconstitutional. It took them a while. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court was from Louisiana at the turn of the 20th century who said that separate would equal was fine, just fine. It took another half century to walk out of that. But when that happened, now the Jim Crow caste system has got to be abandoned. What are we going to do now? How are we going to keep this barrier between them and us? Well, Ms. Alexander says the plan was lock them up en masse and keep on them even if they get out because of having been in jail. She said it started when President Nixon in the early 70s declared his interest in law and order. And this was part of his Southern strategy. 
whereby he needed white uh, boats in the deep south. And so he made a not so subtle call for law and order, which was in direct response to the civil rights marches. These were lawless people. This is what they call it, situational ethics. You know, that you gotta have laws and we can't be marching in our streets like we're a bunch of people trying to jeopardize our American way of life. Well, that's exactly what they were trying to do. And then, of course, what he was doing, he was, he was appealing to the racism and vulnerability of lower white, uh, lower class white people who were justifiably concerned that they might be stuck on the bottom of that employment totem pole. And he had an eager audience. What happened next, of course, is that uh, what she calls the bogus war on drugs. And this started, and this surprised me because I thought I had a good memory, but this started under Ronald Reagan in 1982. Now, in the law, when you have a jury and you're speaking to the jury, the law you tell them is, look, if there's a governmental policy that's being questioned here, what you have to do is assume that that governmental law is legitimate. But if, after you examine that law, you can find nothing legitimate, then you are, you should, you shall, then find that it was illegitimate. You're free to find that. Well, when they said there was a war on drugs, understand, they took a poll, 2% of the American public thought drugs were a problem. War on drugs? Drug use was actually going down, and, and interestingly, thanks in large part to Nancy Reagan and her just say no policy was working. And Mr. Reagan put the block on that. And of course, the, the drugs started to come in. But at the time, for instance, crack cocaine wasn't even around yet. And we had not had a chance yet as Americans to say that crack cocaine belongs in the ghetto with black folks. First of all, that's not true. What is true is that white young people use crack cocaine eight times as much as black kids. If that doesn't stun you, I don't know what is, because we've always been taught this is in the ghetto, and that's where you go to get your drug. That's not true. White people get their drugs in the white communities. But we've been told all of these lies for so long that we begin to believe them. Actually, young white people commit more drug crimes than young black people. That's a fact. Now, Ms. Ms. Alexander said that this is the bottom line, this, this new racial uh, caste, this mass incarceration. And it's had stunning results. Let me read to you from a Yale University Law School Law Review article. In the five decades since African Americans won their civil rights, hundreds of thousands have lost their liberty. Blacks now make up a larger portion of the prison population than they did at the time of Brown versus Board of Education. And their lifetime risk of incarceration has doubled. As the United States has become the world's largest jailer and its prison population has exploded, Black men have been particularly affected. 
Today, black men are imprisoned at 6.5 times the rate of white men. I mean, I could go on all day with this. We don't have time to talk about how it's done all over, but I can tell you in Shreveport, when I told you about the arrests they do, then they're brought into court. And the public defender system is so bad in this parish that the lawyers for you won't even talk to you unless you're out of jail on bond. Well, what if you can't make bond? When your majority are young black men never seen the bond safe for possession of marijuana, $850, they've never seen $850. They're going to be in jail for months until finally they'll plead guilty to anything to get out of that damn jail cell. And it's worse than the federal system where they have now mandatory minimum sentences so that what used to be a one-year sentence is now a minimum of 20 years and God knows where the ceiling goes. And that's how they can come to people who they've arrested in these big drug sweeps. You ever see that happening in the white community? And they lock up all these black kids, and then they come to them and they say, here's the deal, you can either plead guilty, whether you are or not, and despite the fact that we can't prove anything on you, you plead guilty or do you want to go to trial with this lawyer who got appointed for you who doesn't even have a criminal code? You want to go to trial with this clown and risk a minimum of 20 years in a solitary cell in a maximum security facility the feds have waiting for you? Well, what you can do, you can plead guilty to a drug felony and get probation. You won't have any jail at all. And if you think that anybody, very rarely in my experience, has anybody ever tried to refuse that. And so they are forcing people into pleading guilty whether you are or not. Nobody's going to take that risk. Well, then we come to the real problem, which is parole. Because part of this new caste system, this mass incarceration, is keep them in jail as long as you can, and when they get out, do your very best to send them back. Parole is where you're out of jail, and let's say you had a 20-year sentence and you've served 15 of them, <clears throat> you're released and you've got five years of pro parole to do. They can always find something wrong. They, can, they have the right to come into your house night after night at midnight and search your house. They can stop you in a supermarket and search you. And if you've gone for four and a half years of that parole and you go into a bar to find a friend to go eat lunch and they see you in there, they'll revoke your parole. You're back in prison and you have to serve the whole five years. That is a savage policy. And that's what we are witnessing now and most particularly in Cato because of our propensity to lock people up. I looked this up. <clears throat> More people were returned to prison for parole violations in the year 2000 than were admitted into prison for all reasons any reason, whatever the conviction, in 1980. That's astonishing. In less than 30 years, the U.S. prison population has risen from 300,000 people total in the country to 2,300,000. And the vast majority are black. And that's the highest in the world by far. We are so far ahead of, of regimes that we thought were repressive, like Russia, China, Iran, even Cuba, 
and we're the worst of all that. It's even worse in our nation's capital where three of four black men are either in prison or have been and are on parole, 75%. Just last week on television, this new channel, Democracy Now!, which I didn't know existed, said, the guy said, nearly half of the black men in this country are behind bars or are labeled as felons. And we, we sit by and, and talk about this, but I'm not sure we're willing to do much. When, you, when they get out of jail, if they get out at all, let's say they've served the sentence, then it really gets bad. And this is the worst part. After release from prison, they find out that that drug felony has now cost them the right to vote forever. It has now cost them to write the right to ever try to find a job. Good luck on getting a job. With a misdemeanor marijuana possession, you can't get a job forever. You can get it expunged if you've got five to $800 to do it and you knew that you could do it, but you have to wait five years to do it. You are, with a drug felony, and President Clinton did this, you are unable anymore to live in public housing. So all of a sudden, hundreds of thousands of people were out on the street, you and your family. Now your children are going to get taken away and taken to a shelter or to a, a, a children's home, and you've lost your child, your employment, your place where you're living. And we wonder why people go nuts at this stuff. It's impossible. You're not allowed to get welfare anymore, and you're not even allowed to serve on a jury forever. Now this is something we, if you want to really see how it is, by the way, if you talk to me after this, I'll tell you how you can get to city court. And there are people in this, in this room right here that have seen this. You go to city court and you're going to see it's all black. And you go, what? I had a judge call me the other day from city court. He said, Henry, I don't know who else to go to with this, but it's killing me. We are bleeding the black community dry with these fines and with these impossible, it costs $50 a month to be on probation. You know how much money that is to somebody that has a minimum wage job and a family to feed? Can't be done, and as soon as you don't pay, psh, right back in jail. He said that one of these days when the black community figures this out, we're gonna have a race riot, and he was genuinely serious about this. Bottom line is that we have a complete lack of appreciation for this calamity. We continue to call it as racial infection as opposed to a crisis, a real human rights crisis on our watch in our city. And we gotta do something. We can't just sit around and talk. And look, if there's anybody that can do something, it's Unitarian Universalists. We got skin in this game. You heard it mentioned that the Reverend James Weeb was beaten to death with axe handles in Selma. And when Dr. King called around to the nation and said, please come and help us cross this Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Viola Liuza drove all the way, white woman from, from Detroit, drove all the way down to Selma where she was shotgunned to death by the Klan. This is something that we can meet and we can talk about and we can work with other groups, but we're gonna have to start talking. We've got a brand new city council, a brand new mayor, and I know they will listen because I've talked to them. 
but we've got to put the heat on them. And so I would, I'm going to defer it to Barbara and Susan and whoever else wants to help. We need to start scheduling meetings to see what we can do and not just sit back and, and worry about it. We've got skin in this game, and it's up to us to do it. Thank you. <laughs>